Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Welcome back to Fraudology. I received a few questions this week that came on the same day and I went, hmm, I think this is a sign that I need to put out the bat signal and call my friend Gil Rosenthal again and say, even though you were recently on the podcast last month, please come back uh, because I really think that I wouldn't do justice to answering these questions on my own. And so Gil, thank you so much for joining me again on Fraudology. I'm really looking forward to hearing your wisdom uh, to help some of these listeners out. Hi, Carice. Always fun to be on the podcast and very, very happy to help out and share, if I can, what I've learned from in my past experience. Well, yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why I love having you come on is because we really, our experiences are different but similar where, you know, I'm primarily on the e-commerce side. I certainly started out on the payment side for an acquiring bank and, you know, I've worked with some fintechs, but primarily, you know, e-com and tech marketplaces. And you are tech also, but more fintech for consumers and banks and businesses and all of that. So um, I think we have similar philosophies as far as being proactive at fraud fighting and you know, getting to the root cause and those type of things. But uh, we just have we come at things from two different perspectives. Complimentary. Yes, that is... <laughs> That one word was exactly what I was trying to say in my 20. So, <laughs> which is also why we get along so well. <laughs> well, uh, like I mentioned, I had a few, uh, I received a few questions in LinkedIn this week and I had already kind of asked if you'd be willing to step in. And then when I received them, I was like, oh my goodness, this is exactly why I had asked Gil to be on standby. Uh, I just didn't know it yet. Uh, because they're questions from people that are on the banking side, but are, are trying to think of things from a different perspective or wanting to wanting to change their career or just trying to understand. And yeah, I can give the e-com perspective, but you can give the fintech perspective and it's different. So similar, but different. So uh, I'm going to dive into the first question. You know, you already know it, but I'm going to share it for everyone else. Um, and this is from someone who manages credit and debit fraud analytics for a bank. And uh, this is what they've asked. So we've been getting slammed with CNP, token, card on file, and general e-commerce fraud for the past year or so, which I think that means our clients, you know, um, our issuing clients, so cardholders are getting hit with this type of fraud. Uh, we're having difficulties understanding what's happening since we only know what fraud looks like on our end. We don't understand what we're looking at when we see the same merchant ID with multiple acquirer IDs. We don't know how to identify if a terminal is legitimate or a possible stolen terminal that's been changed programmatically. We don't know if we're looking at legitimate monthly charges being run seconds apart from each other, or if we're looking at a dark web purchase list of cards being tested. Do you know where an issuer could go to learn these things? Thanks so much. And then uh, they add, 
Um, I've been off of podcasts for a while, working way too hard, but really need to get back to it. Yours is one of my favorites. Very sweet. Uh, so there's a lot of questions in that, Gil. But ironically, recently, when you and I had just kind of a catch up call, uh, you were talking about a scenario where you identified something like this. And that was why I thought to bring you on. So which part of this question would you like to take on first? Maybe let's let's start with the end, which is the, the end part of the question, which to me is is the easiest part in a way to answer, which is where can an issuer go to learn these things? My recommendation is twofold. First, if you can hire a, a diverse team with diverse backgrounds, ideally add to the team someone with some of this background. It really helps the a fraud team to have people who have had different experiences because in different industries, you think up different ways to handle things and you learn about different types of attacks and it just elevates everyone's level by having a diverse team. It's true because you learn what's possible, right? You don't know what you don't know. And that's more true in fraud than ever. And than almost anything else, I think. And, you know, you don't know what schemes are possible unless you have a diverse team that has seen it from the other side and can say, oh, okay, I see these signals you're getting on the banking side. This is what this means. Exactly. I know it's not always possible. A lot of times there are already people on the team and there are no open headcounts. And But when it's possible, when the opportunity arises, I, I recommend trying to do that and trying to build relatively diverse team with diverse backgrounds. It, it really helps. In lieu of that, the next best option, in my, in my opinion, is to bring on an expert from that field, to have a conversation with the team, to do some education. If you find the right experts, they will do both a talk and a Q&A session. And in the Q&A session, you can dive as deep as you want. And you can, you can bring up, oh, we're seeing this and this. What could that be? And they will give you a ton of value and it's well worth the money. Specifically on econ, she reached out to the expert <laughs> and that would be my go-to. That would be who I ask if my team had this need. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, and I would say that bringing you in would also be so helpful too, because you have had to learn a lot about both sides of the fence from your own experiences, you know, either at PayPal or Bluevine or with all of the clients you're working on, um, which actually reminds me that there was one listener who talked to us a little bit about bringing us both in and we were looking forward to that, but just kind of fell through for various reasons. And that was a bummer, but um, that would have, that would have been fun. We would have actually gotten to meet in person. What? <laughs> Even though that always feels like a formality to me, but uh, you know, just like, Oh yeah, we haven't. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I have all these friends on the internet. What do you mean they're not real? No, I'm kidding. But I think those are good. I mean, those are very kind and and accurate suggestions, right? Of bringing either hiring a diverse team, hiring people who, and I would say too, like hiring the right people from those fields, because maybe just having someone who was an analyst at an e-commerce company may not know all that there is to know, especially if it's a specific type of e-commerce company. For me, I couldn't imagine being in this space without having the payments knowledge that I do. And looking at the questions that are being asked in this overall message, 
the majority of my go-to answers come from the fact that I started out on the payment side and know how to program credit card terminals and know how easy it is or how not easy it is and what you need to know and what you have to have and what it looks like to an acquirer because what it looks like to an acquirer is probably going to be very similar as to what it looks like to an issuer because for people who are listening who haven't been on either one of those sides, you don't have the customer's information. You don't know what they're buying. You don't have a lot of context. And so knowing what context I had on the acquirer side, it's probably very similar. I think it is very similar to what you get on the issuer side. I and mean, then knowing that, I think, so just hiring the right people, right, that have maybe had a step above an analyst, or maybe they've worked at more than one type of e-commerce, or maybe they've worked in the acquiring side and not e-commerce, or maybe for a platform, right? Uh, one of the many e-commerce platforms that are out there now, you know, whether it's Shopify or something like that. But those are good examples. And I certainly love to share information and help with, you know, whether it's a short engagement or a longer one, or, you know, in person or virtual, right? It's fun for me to get to dive in. And I know it is for you too. So, um, those are options there too. Of course. And then I, I think for all of us who have gone into the consulting side or, or of this, a part of that is because we just love all of the different puzzles that you get to play with as part of this. And sometimes just thinking about something we haven't thought of in a while is fun by itself. I, I would definitely say if this is the type of problem you have and you don't have anyone with in-house experience, reach out to people in the industry that you know or you've heard of that that might be able to help and you'd be surprised how many are willing to help in different forms and in different ways yeah and one other thing i would say too just in general of when hiring a consultant and yes i'm a little biased but i know that i have been brought in after other consultants because they haven't solved the problem and you probably have too of just you know making sure that that person has actual working experience in this field there are a lot of brand name big consultancies that hire people fresh out of college to work on problems that i just i couldn't imagine trying to tell someone you know because these are out of the box things and they are puzzles and you have to have that working knowledge. So just, you know, yes, your company may always hire, you know, XYZ, you know, consultancy, but just, you know, if you're having a meeting with them, asking who you're working with and, and where they've worked before might be very helpful before you have signed away a, a lot more money than you'd ever pay Gil or I. <laughs> I think that's very fair, but maybe putting aside the, okay, hire a consultant or, or, or if you want explicitly us, um, the, I think if I look at the rest of the question, from my perspective, being a fraud fighter in large parts is about how to handle having incomplete information and making decisions based on that. So yes, there are the things that you don't know and you can't know from in-house. So you can inform yourself better about them. But to me, what you want to try is first, try and identify the parts that you do know. Is this abnormal, right? How abnormal is this in your system? How much of a spike is this? Unless you are a brand new issuer with no history, in which case you need to build some preliminary defenses, and then those are important as well. You have the ability to compare this to what you've seen in the past. And if it's abnormal, that is a huge red flag. And if it is a spike with a terminal, with a merchant ID, with anything that you are seeing, that is a red flag. And you can compare these to each other, right? Compare the merchant ID to other merchant IDs, compare the MCC codes to other MCC codes, compare the terminal to other terminals. 
And those are good signals to identify that something here is completely off and potentially you need to shut this and just say, no, we're not approving this because it's completely out of line. Sometimes there are exceptional events, right? Like the Taylor Swift just had a picture of this item like on social media and now everyone is buying it and suddenly suddenly there's there's a huge spike. But those are very rare and those are very specific. And on the whole, identifying the abnormalities is a good starting point, even if you don't know other pieces. That's such a good point. And so smart. Of, I mean, it's so true, right? That whether you're a fraud fighter for either, any one of the pieces within the payment process, or maybe it's not cards, right? Maybe it's on the banking side. None of us have the complete picture. And so starting out with, okay, what do we know? And I think specifically just, you know, answering a couple of these specifics, I think you and I can do that. Some of them we can't because we don't have all the information in front of us, but I wouldn't want to give an answer without knowing all the data. But um, typically, you know, if you're seeing the same merchant ID with multiple acquirer IDs, and you just said it, but that does sound pretty abnormal because my understanding especially is that every acquirer has different syntaxes of the merchant ID, right? Just like in a bin of a credit card, part of the merchant ID is is identifying the acquirer. So I don't know how that would actually be legitimate. And maybe I'm wrong. The only thing I can think of is if it's a payfac, but even then a payfac, you know, payment facilitator, that would be more like the same acquirer, but a different merchant ID, right? Than the other way around. But I don't know if you have maybe a different perspective on that. I don't believe I've ever seen. Um, so that to me sounds very suspicious. And that might be worth calling the cardholder, right? I know that in e-com we can't take, I mean, it's just not time. There's not enough time to call the cardholders. And I know in banking there isn't either, but for these kind of, a, you know, for an abnormal or abnormality like that, that you've never seen before, it might be worth saying, hmm, where can I get more of this information? Maybe I'll ask the person whose card it is, because if they don't know, well, then that answers my question too. Yeah. And and you can identify the acquirer. You can reach out to the acquirer. Yeah. You can, that's true. The, those are legit. Definitely when you're seeing things that persist over time, those are legitimate actions to take of reaching out to other parties in the network. And if you don't know how to identify those or how to reach them, there are different types of groups that you can join that include a lot of operators that would help you find the right person. But a lot of times you will have a service provider in-house who who actually has this, these lists that you just need to dig enough to get to their the right team. Right. Yeah. And I mean, when all fails, you can call the, you know, the customer service line. It, uh, you know, I mean, we don't, especially in 2023, it like makes my skin crawl thinking about it and having to talk to a level one, you know, service rep when you like, no, I appreciate that you want to help me. I just need this department. Uh, but as someone who was a level one service rep at one point in my career, I transferred a lot of calls to the fraud department. That's actually how I knew well, it was the risk department, but that's actually how I knew, you know, about them and was fascinated. So that's definitely part of it. You told me a interesting story the other day about some research you were doing for a client uh, and how you identified um, a terminal. You know that that what had happened was probably that a terminal had been downloaded, you know, and, and there were some forced things happening there. Is that? Can you share a little bit of that story? 
So I was working with an issuer who had a problem where one of their cardholders was able to issue thousands of dollars worth of force captures. Force capture is, is, is when the merchant grabs money from the card without waiting for the authorization, but they expose themselves because then any chargeback is automatically approved, right? And you need the person using the terminal to enter an override code in order to do this. So it has to be someone using the terminal. It can't just be the consumer saying, I want a force capture. Someone needs to, to approve it on the terminal side. And this is an in-person transaction because it's a credit card terminal. It's not e-commerce gateway, right? Exactly. But the problem is that this was attacking a closed card. And because force capture doesn't check anything, it also doesn't check if the card is closed. So this closed card would keep debiting them for thousands of dollars and they would charge back and win. And then it would happen again. And what ends up happening is that this person basically is able to get a few thousand dollars worth of money and who pays for it is the merchant who gets charged back. And even if the merchant is able to capture the money back from them, then they basically got a free loan of a few thousand dollars for a couple of weeks. So all of these cases are, are pretty bad. And they asked me, how do we get it to stop? It was a good question. I reached out to a group of operators with this question saying, hey, I'm noticing I'm working with a, a customer who, who has this problem with this merchant's terminal. And someone in the operators group reached out, reached back out to me. And, and because they saw them like in the details I've mentioned, something very familiar, they flat out asked me, Hey, is it this person with this company doing this thing in this city? <laughs> in, in this city. And, and, and it was spot on. It was one to one. And apparently it, they've just been doing it with different, different cards for again on different companies over time. So. That was very helpful to know that, okay, this is just the same person is able to continue continuously doing this. To me, the, the likely story means that this terminal is compromised, right? Like the, a real merchant can't sustain all of these chargebacks, won't do that. And so it's probably that this terminal is compromised either, either because the person operating the terminal is willing to take kickbacks or because, because the bad actor actually got a hold of the terminal and is able to operate. It's possible that the bad actor works for that company, right? Because in this case, it's an existing company. What I would have expected to see and what I was expecting you to say before you told me some of those details was that this was a made up company, right? Because a lot of times I've seen that where, you know, they get a hold of a terminal from a marketplace. They, you know, know enough about merchant services to figure out how to download the terminal. And, you know, you can get a merchant's ID from their a receipt. And so it's not hard, which I'm actually just now realizing that would be something really easy for me to do. I would never do it in a million years, but like just, huh. But I mean, and, and my downloading skills are, are rusty on terminals by far, but um, you know, there's still some of those old ones around, right? But then you have this problem if you're downloading a duplicate, you know, an existing merchant ID, then that's where the money's going, right? And so to your point, the money from that forced capture is going to an existing merchant and an existing location of a merchant in this case. And so it's got to be that either that person works there and they're kind of giving themselves a loan in a way, or they know that the merchant doesn't look at their chargebacks and they know that they can get free services for this, or they're, you know, giving somebody a hundred bucks under the table, just, Hey, here, do this. You know, it's hard to know, but 
I thought that was an interesting story where especially just how small the world is that of all things, right? This one person has been doing this for so long that they're just changing banks all the time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, and then on these other things, and I mean, like I said, I think a few of these specifics we can't answer, but I think that, you know, the fact that really what you said at the beginning, right, of looking at, is this something that we see all the time, right? And the fact that it's not says, hmm, we should look into this more. And then, you know, knowing where to look for more pieces of data. So contacting the acquirer, you know, and asking them, hey, what's going on here? What do you see on your end? Or what do you know about this person? And especially if you can contact an operator directly, they'll talk operator to operator, right? There are some things they can't share. And you'll respect that, but they'll share more than they ever would with a cardholder, than they more than they could. Uh, you know, and if you need to contact the merchant, you know, you can, but then again, in this case, you don't know if the merchant's compromised. Um, I don't know how many times I saw all kinds of crazy things on the merchant services side, because while I was, while I did have the Silicon Valley bank portfolio, I also had a portfolio of card present merchants too, and definitely saw my share of, you know, employees giving themselves or their uh, family members refunds when there wasn't a, you know, a corresponding sale or, you know, just random things like that, uh, going outside of, uh, card rules for specific types of goods that Visa won't allow cards on. <laughs> we had more than a couple gentlemen's clubs that were, <laughs> that, uh, had merchant IDs, uh, within or, you know, for their gift shop, but were not able allowed to process credit cards for uh, any services and that uh you know would show up very specifically right so you just kind of like with everything no matter what side of the fence you're on on the payment side on the payment cycle you can really kind of figure out uh what try to figure out what's going on and then to your point you know reach out to somebody who might know either about a specific case or in general i fully agree with that um and then maybe one last thing I would say is give a shout out to about fraud because um, when I get stuck on something and I need to learn something new that I don't really know, that's usually my starting point. If I'm just trying to Google it is I'll start with about fraud and work my way from there. That's interesting. So you mean within there on their website, on their website, there, there's quite a lot of, of like basic information about different types of fraud. I start from there and then I, Google further the good terminology that I figure out from there. It doesn't get you to an expert level in any way, but it gives you some insight into yeah. something. Gives you a starting point of what to actually call it or what to, huh, that's a great tip. I mean, and obviously I've had, you know, PJ on the show and, you know, Ronald, I've known for a long time as well. They're both the co-founders of About Fraud. Um, I admittedly have not been on their website in a long time. So now I need to go do that. But I do know that they have a lot of other resources as far as vendors to contact or consultants to contact, you know, things like that, that, you know, or uh, educational content. I'm grateful that they include the podcast as well as, you know, my consulting services on their website. Uh, but that's about the extent of it that I know. So I am glad that you called that out. If you're a regular listener of Fraudology, you've heard me talk about SPEC. Not only does their no-code platform let you instantly assemble the fraud solutions that you need to stay ahead of bad actors, but Spec's long list of integrations is always growing, empowering you to orchestrate your data to create customized customer journeys. 
Spec lets you stay ahead of fraud while enabling great customer experiences for your legitimate users. Request your personalized demo of Spec's Trust Cloud today at specprotected.com. That's www.specprotected.com. Or you can visit their website by clicking the link in today's show notes. So the next question I received, well, we received really, I felt like, again, these are (laughs) not just for me, was from someone who has been in the banking side for about 15 years, banking side of risk and fraud in different ways, issuer, you know, different uh, banking side as well, not just on the uh, card side, um, but, you know, deposits, transactions, et cetera, accounts. And uh, here's their question. I'm in the financial services sector and would like to transition to a role in fraud and payments risk at a retailer or a processor. Any advice? I'll let you start. So I think shifting industries is a mini version of shifting careers. In this case, you are going to have a harder time and you need to accept that as, as a starting point of, of it's going to be a bit more difficult of a journey, but it should be very doable. There are most of the skills are transferable. If you can be good at one, you should be able to be good at the other. It's just about picking up knowledge and expertise and experience. My main suggestion would be submit your resume. Like I just suggested to hire diversified fraud teams. I was wondering if you were going to full circle that one. <laughs> I was looking for people with diversified backgrounds uh, for my fraud team. I, I think that's a very good thing for others to do. So if you're looking for it, that's always an opportunity. You'll be surprised how many of them are looking for people with, uh, potentially with your background. The next option, if that isn't going amazing, is to look at the middle way, right? Like what's a middle way? Like what's a, a stopping point that gets you closer to where you want to get to, gets you, for a lot of people in the banking industry, first step is getting out of banking, right? Like is, is experience a different type of organization and see if you like it, right? Because banks operate in a very, very specific regulatory environment, culture mm-hmm. that isn't the same once you start, once you, once you get out of it. So you need to see if that's for you or not. In addition, what I would consider as, as a middle point that needs a lot of times, a lot of different diverse backgrounds and likes hiring from banking and from e-commerce and from and where you can learn about all a lot of these are the vendors. And some of the brightest people in the industry work at vendors, did stops at vendors, did, because it's very informative and it allows you to get a very wide perspective very quickly. Sometimes if you want to make a career change, you need to do it in two hops and not in one. And, and doing like the middle hop in one of the vendors can be a good a good way to get there. It's a really good point. And um in addition to, you know, some of the stuff that I was going to suggest too, just kind of hopping off on that point, when you mentioned that the first person that came to my mind was Andrew Austin. And the reason I don't feel bad about saying his name other than knowing that he listens to every episode. So hi, Andrew. Um, knowing that uh, he's shared this on the podcast, right? And talked about uh, switching his career from banking to e-commerce and he did that exact thing where he went from a bank to an acquirer that you know, needed banking skills, but also that acquirer was working with 
merchants. So he was able to really get his feet wet and understand some of those specifics and some of the terminology and some of the terminology is the same, but they mean different things. And so, you know, just kind of getting your feet wet on that and understanding that piece. And then you also, it also allows you depending on the role you have with that solution provider. Oftentimes, if you're an operator, if you're a fraud fighter, you're gonna be having conversations with you know their clients. And some solution providers work with both banking and e-commerce companies. Uh, other times, you know, it'll just be a good way to go to conferences and soak it up and meet new people and, you know, figure that out. I think that's a really good step. Highlighting what you said about the culture. Oh, it could not be different. And I know several friends of mine who have gone from traditional banking to tech and they love it. And then there are others that have gone from banking to tech and gone, what the heck is going on here? This is like chaos because it moves at a different speed for sure. There isn't regulation. You're more, you know, reactive and kind of a little more wild west. You're not doing things. You're not creating your roadmap based on regulations that are happening in two to three years. You're building your roadmap based on like what's coming on your doorstep and what you have to fix right now on the front lines. And, you know, it can also be a little less buttoned up uh, and it'll move very fast. And, and it can sometimes be, uh, you know, oftentimes, depending on the type of company you work for and how long they've been around, I mean, HR might not even exist yet, right? So uh, knowing that and knowing those different, but you also get to wear jeans every day and sweats, you know, I mean, there's so many trade offs. And I think that knowing that and just knowing there's a difference um, is a good thing. Yeah, I fully agree with everything you just said. I, I think that it's spot on. I, um, I think identifying tech as chaos makes sense to me. I did in one of the companies I worked worked at, there there was a mantra saying embrace ambiguity. Yes. Oh my gosh. And it's because it's chaos. So yes, I think the the conference thing you mentioned actually is one I didn't think about, but actually maybe to expand on that, because I think it's very good, is let let's tie the two things we like the two questions together back again. Mm-hmm. Suggest to your company to, to to or to your bank that you will be the person who gets this type of expertise and ramps up on this type of expertise and build up your role in the company a bit in a proactive way on potentially on your own time as the merchants expert who understands merchants. You can be the point of contact who would call merchants and talk to them about what they're seeing. You can go potentially go to conferences to meet people in the industry. If you're able to sell them on that idea, they might be willing to put some budget on both training and conferences and other things for this. Doesn't need to be massive amounts of budget. You get to build up your experience. You get to build up your network. And after some time, if you want to still, if you still want to make that transition, that transition becomes smoother. Well, yeah. And actually that brings me back to my episode two weeks ago with Sid Shaw, because, you know, he's on the financial services side and has found so much benefit going to e-commerce conferences uh, to learn that side. And I've definitely, you know, at the conference I go to every year in March uh, in Vegas, more and more there have been people from other sides of the fence coming in just saying, I just want to understand what you guys are seeing. Sometimes they might get bombarded because merchants want to know what issuers are seeing or what the heck they're thinking. But there is one particular issuer uh, 
a very large one that comes to the conference every year and, you know, usually speaks at it, uh, which provides them with free registration and learns so much as well. And so, I mean, I would love to see one day a conference for everyone. I think there's a lot of logistics in there that I've talked out with a couple of people that I think you need to be considered before it can be uh, really a reality. But that's a really good point that honestly, I didn't think I was just thinking of going to conferences if you work for the vendor. But it's such a good point as far as you know, you want to go learn like go to a conference and then you meet people. And even if the conference content isn't about these specific issues, you will always find a friendly face. And, you know, if you say, hey, I just want to understand this, like, do you mind if I buy you a cup of coffee tomorrow or whatever? I mean, there are some incredible people. I mean, I also would say that there's a lot of great people I've had on the podcast that would always welcome, you know, a conversation or be willing to help in, in some way. The other thing I would say on this one is similar to what you were saying at the beginning is highlight the skills that you do have. Because like I've said before, and I think I even said this on this episode earlier, I can't imagine being in e-commerce without my payments knowledge. Like coming from the acquirer side, and it did help that the first merchant I worked for was one of my clients that uh, I, well, was one of my merchants when I was at the acquirer. So I then was the client of the company. I knew where they hid the fees and I knew where they, they didn't like that very much. Uh, they actually, I had to walk somebody through how to change the file for the for the merchant I worked for and the files themselves were in DOS still. <laughs> I mean, this is like the mid 2000s before 2010. So like it wasn't that long ago. Um, but because I knew that there was certain fees that they were charging us for that I didn't, I was like, no, we shouldn't be doing this. So here's how you fix the file. And we were the only merchant in their entire portfolio, like thousands of merchants that had that. Um, but so it was very helpful to do it for that specific acquirer, but also just in general, right? Knowing that piece, I came to, that's also why I was able to be different in talking about chargebacks at conferences and how I became the chargeback girl for so long because I understood them from the acquirer side. Actually, I had Robbie Perry on the podcast like over a year and a half ago talking about going from an issuer to a merchant. So that would be another good episode to listen to and, you know, soak that in. So Andrew Austin's, you know, Robbie Perry, different people like that. I think listening to their episode and then maybe reaching out to them would be good. Um, and then just in general, when you're looking for a new job, I think some of the questions that I suggest that people ask themselves are things like, do I want to be a big fish in a little pond or a little fish in a big pond? Because especially on the and I think that that's true on the banking side, on the fintech side, on the merchant side, depending on the size of the company. But there are it's something I learned going from a small startup where I was, you know, the fraud expert and I got a lot of autonomy and I got to build the thing and, and get to see it in action and, and all of that. And then I went to a really big company that had almost 100 people on their fraud team. And I learned some from them, but I wasn't able to do as much, right? And um, for me, I, it wasn't an ego thing as much as it was a personality thing that I realized, oh, I think it's better for me to be in a smaller pond, but be the big fish rather than be the same size fish, but in a much bigger pond and feel small. There are some people that are cut out for each one. That is very true. I, I had the opposite transition, right? I went from a very big company to a very small company. And a part of why I made that transition is because at the time I felt like a cog in a machine, but I know a lot of others who want that stability and want 
not just the stability, but also the resources that come with it. I moved to a company that had nothing. Everything had like, not nothing, that there were very good people already in place and they've built some, some pretty amazing stuff. But 90% of what I had in my previous company wasn't there and had to be built from scratch and built up. I personally really enjoy that, but I know other people who that drove them crazy. Well, yeah, and I've seen I've seen that happen too, where uh, I've seen people move from a big company to a small company and not be able to because at the big company, they were just responsible for a small piece. And then at the smaller company, they're responsible for end to end. And some people thrive there. Other people are like, wait, I can't just call this other department. No, you're that department. <laughs> you know, we don't have it all broken up into this, 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 and this. And so I've you're all the departments. Well. Yeah, you're all of them. <laughs> and some of us thrive in that and other people don't. And I, I actually have a lot of respect for the people who work for the big companies and stay in the big companies because I couldn't do that. Um, maybe if I was in like the senior role, but even then it would be a challenge for me because I really like being able to, you know, see the impact. So I guess knowing who you are and the type of role you want, right? Do you want to be more specialized in analytics and product and, you know, people management, or do you want to do all of the above? Like that to me is um, something that when you're moving from one area to another, you're going to kind of have to give that direction because it's not as easy as, okay, you were this person for a company that's similar for us. So this is what you'll be doing or on this track for you know a similar company. You're having to say, hey, I did this and this is how it applies to what the position is. And so it's a good time to be able to really look inward of what do I love doing and what am I the best at, right? It's looking for your zone of genius. I know I talk about it a lot, but it's because it really helped me a lot. And sometimes a lot of times when I'm talking to people who are just not happy in their job, it's because only 5% of what they're doing is what they really love and what they're really good at and what they're better at anyone else than, you know, otherwise they're just kind of mediocre and they're not fired up and they're not fulfilled. And so you know, and if you're not fulfilled, then your company isn't getting the best out of you either. So it's kind of a lose-lose for everyone. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I think anyone who's thinking about job transitions should take a moment and think, where do I thrive in? And what am I unhappy with in my current job? Is it the type of work? Is it the culture? Is it the type of company? Or is it just the specific people or a specific situation? And I need this. I actually want the same type of same type of job or same type, same type of company, only different. Mm -hmm. Doing that self-assessment and that self-work ahead of time is so important. And then when you're going through the process, you know, I have a couple of friends who won't apply for a position unless they know for sure that they want the job. And I'm like, no, 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 you're interviewing them too. We don't, and, and partially in one person that comes to mind, it's because they've never, they've always gotten offered the job. And so they're not used to, uh, you know, that kind of that dance that has to happen. But, you know, if there's enough in a job description that makes you go, okay, you know, and then looking at Glassdoor, right, is so important or other, there's other types of review companies too for employees and all of that, you know, looking on LinkedIn to see if you have a, a first or a second connection at that company to ask questions. You know, I, I would wait to do that until you're already interviewing, you know, just to save time. But 
you know, doing that research ahead of time can be really helpful because you don't know what you don't know. And it's one of my mentors compared it to buying a house and, you know, you can go in and you can kind of understand where you're going to put the furniture and what you're going to do there, you know, in a job, right? You can kind of, in a job interview, you can understand what you're, you know, what it's going to be expected of you, what your core KPIs are going to be, like, you know, the basics of, of what some of their challenges are and, and who you'll be working with. You'll know those basic things, but just like moving in a house, you don't know that the neighbors blast their music at 3 a.m. until you live there, right? You don't know that your coworker really likes to microwave fish until you are in the office, right? Like you don't know those things. And so doing as much as you can to find out what you can know ahead of time can help that transition be easier too. Yeah. And, and the, the flip side of it is, is being trying to get it perfect. It's, it's also like in the same analogy of the house, if you mm-hmm. only go to open houses of houses, you're a hundred percent sure you're going to bid on, mm-hmm. then you're not going to enough open houses. Mm. Right? Like, and if you're only interviewing to jobs that you're sure, a hundred percent sure you want, you're not seeing enough different jobs. You're not giving yourself enough opportunities. Well, right. And also if it's been a while since you've interviewed, right, it's good to kind of shake the rust off a little bit and not that you're using companies to do that, but that is the way to do it. And I mean, you know, let's be honest, especially in this job market, it is a lot more competitive than it used to be. And it is a little more challenging. And so, you know, just like companies are trying to find the right person, you need to find the right company too. And you may not know that. I mean, we could also use the dating analogy, right? Like, you know, how many frogs do you have to go with or whatever before you find, you know, sometimes you have to know what you don't want in order to find what and identify what you do want. Well, we're almost out of time, Gil. This is so much fun. I just love having you on the podcast, I think, because we have a shorthand and, and we've done this a fair amount. And also because, you know, we are so complimentary to each other in, in different ways. Um, but I'd love to finish up with either kind of funny or, you know, story about a job interview that you had or something like that, or maybe you're some pieces of wisdom that you would have for people, you know, on the banking side right now, or that maybe are, you know, experiencing layoffs or something like that. So I'll try and I'll try and combine both in a way. So I think people who are, experiencing rounds of layoffs and it could be in the banking side could be in, like in, in pretty much our entire industry i don't think it's as bad as it was in the heyday of of last year but but there are some stormy clouds ahead and i, I know people are still hurting in different in different areas from so from my perspective a big part of this is never stop interviewing i i used to actually tell my own team members that every 3 to 6 months they should interview somewhere else. It gives you a perspective. It gives you the ability and it gives them calmness. They know if they know that they can find another job if they need to, then they are not panicked. They are with me because they want to be with me. And I believe in myself as a manager that they will want to stay. And if I'm un- com- so underpaying them or, or not treating them well that they want to leave, then, then that's a good thing for them. I, Highly recommend that. I used to get a lot of flack for it, for, for telling this to our company employees. Go interview elsewhere every once in a while to see, see what you're worth, see that you're able to get another job. But for the most part, I think it is helpful. And before we are people's bosses, we are humans. 
And I just think that's the right thing for people to do. So I highly recommend to pretty much anyone, if it's been more than six or 12 months since you last had a job interview and you checked in the market, you updated your resume, you checked if you would get that callback from a job that you potentially would like, do it. I know it's it might be counterintuitive and people feel loyalty to their place of work, but it is worthwhile. And the level of calmness you will have in your own life by knowing that you can leave if you want to would be great. My spouse is an academic or was an academic. And for many years, she was trapped in a situation where she cannot leave. Not because she would have to give up way too much and there's no real options. That The beauty of working in the open market that we're all working in is that you can do that. You can go interview. I'm so glad you said that. And I love that as a manager. I mean, I can imagine that you're HR department was like, really, we're trying to retain people here. But I can see it having the reverse effect, right? Or the effect that you wanted it to. Or if they realize, hey, you know what, this company over here is going to pay me more. And I think it's a better fit. Well, then you want them to grow, right? Because they're a human too. And you're you just want the best for them. I have you know, people in my life who have worked for the same company for 20 years. And when there's a layoff, it mean sleepless nights, right? Because they don't know if they can get something somewhere else. I also, I mean, I certainly know that they can, especially, you know, with the experience and everything else, but that's not the same as them, right? And so that's, that's part of it. And then also, you just never know, right? And with layoffs and things like that, it does do a lot to your psyche. And whether you are the last one standing or, you know, you've been spared or not, it, it's really, it does a number on you. And so if you have that knowledge in the back of your head that if I need to leave, if I want to leave, I can, but I'm here because I want to be and not because I'm stuck. I think that that does just clear up so much mental clutter. And um, I can see how that would be, honestly, that's similar advice that I've given people in my life as far as just at least feel like you're putting energy in that direction, right? It's going to at least make you feel like you're not stuck and you have some autonomy. And I do think that people in our field more than maybe others in tech anyway, uh, are exceptionally loyal to our employees or our employers and our employees. But I have had to say this more often than I wish I could. And I hate doing it because I feel like, you know, the bad person, but I have had to tell several people in this industry that your company is not as loyal to you as you are to them. And if they had to make a decision tomorrow, it wouldn't be hard for them. And that sucks, but it's true. And so, you know, no one manages your career but yourself and doing those exercises and having that resume ready and doing that just, you know, hey, just check in to see if I still got it. Just check in to see if I've still, you know, if there's something better out there. And if there's not, then you're going to work even harder at the job you have because you want to keep it. Employment is mutual choice, right? And you have to know that this is what you choose in a way. Though, if you are a manager telling this to your employees, make sure to tell them it in a nice way, not not to sound as if you're telling them, you don't really have other options. If you don't believe me, go check. Right. But, but tell, tell it to them or, in a way that is... Right. This is for your benefit. Like, 
I wouldn't mind it. It's more like a professional courtesy or it's more like professional development. I think, you know, it's a good exercise. I'd imagine that the people who worked for you then still do that to a certain extent. I hope. And I hope their current employers are good enough to retain them despite the fact that they're doing that. Yeah. And that kind of, you know, puts the onus on the employers too, right? For retention purposes. But, uh, I actually thought you were going to say, don't tell your employees, like, go look somewhere else. Like, I think it's time for you to go look for greener pastures. But I think in either way, right, maybe positioning it the correct, you know, the right way or saying, hey, check out the last like 10, 15 minutes of this podcast, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> you can understand the the point there. That way, I'm not the one saying, you know, yeah, go look for something else <laughs> or yeah, good luck finding something else. <laughs> Well, Gil, as always, we blew through an hour so quickly, but uh, I appreciate you so much. I really think that the people who sent these questions in will appreciate you as well as the people listening, right? Just because I'm always a big proponent of the thinking that if one person reaches out and asks a question, there's probably dozens of people that have a similar question or that would benefit from the answers. So that's, you know, why I thought they'd make good podcast episode. Amazing. Happy to be here. Always. Thank you very much, Grace. Well, thank you so much. And I will see you soon. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.